0: You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we hear from the head of the city's Department of Planning and Permitting. Dean Uchida this morning joked that he is up to his neck in challenges with this job, which he took over just as the FBI indicted several DPP workers on bribery charges. The scandal hangs like a black cloud over a department that for decades has been the target of public complaints. Uchida admits the permitting process is broken, but he says the root of the problem is short staffing, and he's asking the public for patients while this administration works on a fix.
1: You know, we're processing over about 20,000 building permits a year, and we haven't increased staff since 1998. So you can imagine what it's like trying to shove 20,000 permits through just a handful of planned examiners. So that's the first area we're trying to build. We're going to build capacity in our planned examining side, adding more staff across the board, as well as improving and modernizing the department with better use of technology, hardware, and software.
0: Did you have any luck with the recent job fair?
1: The entire city went out. Then we had some feelers. You know, part of what the mayor's trying to do is basically revamp the HR process, too, because we had so many vacancies. We were adding people, but this vacancy rate stayed the same because we were having these baby boomers retire, right? So it's kind of like this uh, treadmill. We, we're not getting anywhere, we, even though we're hiring more people. So he's trying to hire faster, you know, like a— because he's a coach, he calls it recruiting. So we're recruiting, you know.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, if I recall, I think you know there was this uh, effort to try and uh, streamline. Well, how would you say? Isn't there an effort to try and 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 look at the barriers uh, that we face? You know, when it comes to recruiting. I mean, if I if I recall right, didn't you have a position that required? Shorthand for yeah. for one of those uh, vacancies?
1: Yeah. So we have um, you know some antiquated job descriptions, and I think that's the whole, the whole thing. We're trying to revamp the entire HR process of you know onboarding staff, so we can do it faster. The process takes so long that by the time we get a list of qualified candidates, you know the bulk of them have already found another job. So we need to compress that process a little bit more, so we can get a list faster and interview people faster.
0: And the city had tried to bring in third-party reviewers to help speed up the process, but I understand that there there have been some problems with that.
1: Yeah. Um, the third-party review was mainly for the building permit process. And as soon as we got in here, the five federal indictments all dealt with the third-party review project. So we began to do audits on the third party, which had never been audited before. And we found Uh, I guess concerning to us and should be to the community is that like 100% of our electrical plans were failing, failing to to meet code. So we started auditing everything that came in, and it created a huge backlog. So we backed off on everything and started random audits. But even that caused some backlog. So we suspended the audits for the entire month of July just so that we can clear out the backlog as much as we can. But I think the message got through to the third parties. The quality of the plans coming in have been a lot better and they've been a lot more responsive when you know, when we're making comments on the plans.
0: How are we holding those companies accountable for those errors?
1: Well, we, we we're letting the, the community know the design professionals, architects and engineers that you know their clients are paying for the third party and if their the the plans are not meeting cold, then you know it's not our fault, it's not being called code. It's the designers and the third-party reviewers. So they should put more pressure on the third-party people to do a better job, right?
0: How many third-party companies do we have?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. Offhand. We get, Some are just residential. Some are residential and commercial. So kind of a mixed bag. But
0: it'd be like but we, about half a dozen, dozen?
1: Yeah, it's over a dozen. I don't know the exact number, but um, we plan on having some kind of like a performance report card put on our website showing the number of applications and those applications that uh, were successfully processed or rejected so that the public gets an understanding of what's happening to third-party reviewers.
0: How many permits have these third-party reviewers processed?
1: I don't know the exact number, but, you know, we process over like 20,000 permits a year. And I think the third party represent about at least 60 percent of our total gross number of permits.
0: Is it one or two bad apples that we're talking about, or is it just across the board?
1: I think that initially when we did the audit, it was across the board. But like I said, there's been improvements since we started the audit. So I think a lot of them have stepped up their game, brought in better quality plans. That's why we're trying to put something on the website so that, you know, the ones that are performing get recognized and the ones that aren't performing, you know, at least people will know.
0: All right. Well, we're just about up with uh, the month of July here. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, tomorrow's it. What happens on Monday, August 1st, going forward?
1: Well, I'm going to reassess our our situation with our building division and find out, you know, if we should continue suspending the audit or if we um, cut the backlog enough that we can do the random audits again. So that decision hasn't been made yet.
0: And where are we at with the backlog of permits for solar projects?
1: There's two types of solar projects. It is like single-family residential. And as of December of last year, all single-family residential solar PV, PV battery permits can be obtained online. The commercial and multifamily because it's a little bit more complicated, they still have to file a, a building permit application.
0: So, do we have a backlog or not?
1: You know, for some reason, we're not getting very many of the commercial and uh, multifamily. I'm not sure what the issue is. We're trying to get a consultant on board to take a look at what seems to be the problem with the commercial and multifamily.
0: Okay, but there is no more backlog for residential?
1: There shouldn't be. Well, we have certain lots that they, they consider flag. flagged. They have a problem like in you know, a flood zone or a historic property of some kind. So we're trying to work through those issues and put as many online as we can.
0: How bad was the problem last year when we had the backlog?
1: Uh, I think it was several hundred, especially after the PUC made the decision to shut down the, um, the coal-fired plant like next month, and oh, I mean in September. And then um, PICO came out with that battery bonus program. That caused a spike in the number of um, PV and solar permits we were getting. I think that was last summer. So we ended up having a backlog and then we figured out a way of putting everything online and that got rid of the backlog.
0: Okay. So that's a, a bright spot.
1: We're making progress. Making progress. Little baby steps, but we're making progress.
0: And then what can you say about the status of the vacation rental rules?
1: We are setting up the branch right now for enforcement because of the I mean the, the ordinance takes effect in October. So we want to have a registration process and our enforcement procedures all set up before the bill takes effect. So something will come out on the website pretty soon about how they can register. 8 August or early September. That's our, that's our target date anyway.
0: And so how are you ramping up that project when we have the shortage of staffers?
1: Well, we actually pulling staff from around the department to set up the enforcement branch temporarily on an interim basis until we can get the positions described and the positions filled with the full time workers. So it is gonna cause some delays in other areas of our department, but we gotta you know we gotta bite the bullet on this one because the, the ordinance takes effect in October.
0: So you're having to rob Peter to pay Paul essentially
1: just to exactly. get this started. Exactly. But, you know, the staff has been more than willing to step up and help us out at least on an interim basis. So I think that's a positive step.
0: And there was a point, and it was before this administration, but, you know, we did, I think, fund some emergency inspectors to crack down on these uh, illegal vacation rentals. I don't know. Are we looking at trying to maybe reach out to some retired inspectors to come back?
1: Well, I'm actually trying to create a, a different position description, more like investigators than inspectors, because our guys are building inspectors. They check for code compliance, you know, um, illegal construction, that kind of stuff. Going after, you know, short-term, illegal short-term vacation rentals is a kind of different ballgame, so it's a different skill set we're looking for.
0: Have we started uh, advertising for those slots yet?
1: Uh, We're working on the position descriptions right now.
0: Okay, but those should be out pretty soon. Okay. Um, gosh, I don't know anything else Uh, now now that you're you're knee deep, uh, you know, into this uh, department, I mean, like neck deep, neck deep. Okay, neck deep. How are you looking at this going forward?
1: We've got to address the staffing issue and the the administration, the mayor and the council have been more than supportive. We asked for 80 vacant positions to be filled and we asked for 80 new positions. So there's 160 positions within our budget. Um, We're going to phase it in over a two year period. And we've got 100% support from the administration and the council. Our budget was not amended when we went to council. So, you know, I think everybody recognizes the problem. I think we have a solution going forward. I just got to ask the public to be patient because, you know, adding 160 bodies to an organization, especially in this market, is going to take some time. But I think we're on the right path.
0: At one time, we had a building department and a planning department. You know, right. has, has there been any discussions at all about do we need to return, you know, to a a reorg?
1: That discussion has come up a number of times. And even when I'm talking to the neighbor island people, Mm -hmm. they got to bring two people to meet with me because one of the building permit side and one of the planning side, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I I think I got to take a deeper dive into that. We're just trying to fix all the problems first and then figure out a path forward after that. The building permit process is broken. And yes, people are waiting too long for their permits. We, We understand all the problems, understand the concerns. But it is a staffing problem at the, at the end of the day. And until we address that, not, there's not going to be any improvement or change. So we're trying to put 100% in our effort into just building capacity in the department right now.
0: And that was Dino Cheetah, the city's uh, director of Department of Planning and Permitting. He tells us that Depar- the department is also in the process of spending $3 million for a new computer system to track projects. Uh, that is expected uh, to go out to bid later this year. This is a conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz.
2: Onihoa, olehua, Onihao, Oa,
0: Later in the hour, we'll have a story about the way students are commemorating World War II and the attack on Pearl Harbor. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're going all the way back to 1941. The bombing brought martial law to the then-territory of Hawaii, and with it, heightened suspicion of the local Japanese-American population. The University of Hawaii's Reserve Officers Training Corps, the ROTC, was transformed into the Hawaiian Territorial Guard, or HTG. Uh, University of Hawaii students were given rifles with five bullets in order to guard facilities like bridges, reservoirs, pumping stations, and high schools. But when the federal government learned that some of them were Japanese Americans, those students were dismissed. The government reclassified them as enemy aliens, ineligible to serve in the military. The students who had been kicked out of HTG responded by forming a new organization to prove their loyalty to America. Today we're looking for the name of that organization. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neiread Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NeireadHawaii.com.
0: What's expected to be the last shipment of coal to burn for energy pulled into port yesterday. The cargo ship, the Flying Tiger, is docked at Kalailoa Barbers Point. Its delivery of 15,000 tons of coal will fuel AES Hawaii's power plant at Campbell Industrial Park until the end of August, when the plant is scheduled to shut down. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote talked to Sandra Larson, Hawaii market business leader for the AES Corporation, about this next step in Hawaii's transition to green energy
4: this is really an end of an era in how energy is generated for Oahu's fuel and electricity needs. It really is very significant. For 30 years, the plant has provided energy at the lowest available cost. And so we have been providing up to 20% of Oahu's energy at about 12 cents per kilowatt hour.
5: Wow. Wow. And you mentioned that AES, Hawaii's power plant, has provided up to 20% of Oahu's power. What is it currently generating?
4: Uh, today we had a slight rate of 10 megawatts, so we're at 170 megawatt capacity. So it fluctuates um, throughout the day depending on uh, Hawaiian electrics needs. And we work very closely and you know they dispatch us at the levels that they need. 180 megawatts is up to 20% of Oahu's energy needs, so mm-hmm. it would be slightly below that.
5: And now the boat is here. What does it take to get the coal from the shipyard to the plant?
4: We have a really unique system. Uh, from the harbor to the plant, there is a conveyor belt. So that actually can electronically, I guess, through the conveyor belt, take the coal to the plant. So we don't have to rely on any trucking to get the the fuel supply source to the plant. So what we do have is, you know, lots of our stevedores help us to unload the vessel, and they unload that onto the coal conveyor belt, and that's how it's taken to the plant. So for this particular shipment, my understanding is, you know, depending on availability and you know weather and all of that that it would probably take about three days to unload this vessel.
5: Ostensibly it's enough coal to take us to September 1st when AES the plant is scheduled to close its doors. Now what does that process involve? Is there a giant lever on the wall that you pull? Is it just one final light switch you turn
4: off? Well not exactly. (laughs) Uh, We're working so You know, as the coal comes in, it's really important that we work closely with Hawaiian Electric to ensure that we are dispatching the plant in a way that uses all of that fuel supply so that we don't have any coal left at the plant at the end of the plant's life. So we work very closely with Hawaiian Electric's team. We give them our supply information and daily burn forecast on a weekly basis so that we can both work together to ensure and you know that's typical for a coal plant decommissioning is to work towards making sure that you burn down the coal pile so that you don't have anything left over because if we if we did have any over, we'd we'd most likely have to ship that off island.
5: And are there any variables specifically that would complicate us hitting that mark for September 1st?
4: Definitely if something happened in terms of we had an unplanned outage or if something were to impact the availability of the plant for a few hours or for a day, that would impact the um, level of production and our availability. And that would certainly, could certainly impact how quickly we're able to go through the fuel supply.
5: Our coal plant has been providing energy to hui's community Uh for 30 years and the plan to bring renewable projects online to make up that 180 wattage has seen supply chain issues other kinds of delays is there any reason why the coal plant would not close on september 1st
4: no (laughs) we are working hard to one dispatch the plant in a way that so that we won't have any fuel supply left to continue operating and secondly we have been working really really hard with all of our employees to make sure that we find them jobs as soon as our plant closes so we won't have anybody there in theory to run the plant that's one of our big goals is to make sure that we place everybody in employment at the end of this Coal plants shutting down, and we want to make sure that everybody has a place to go. And we have already been able to put several of our employees into clean energy positions. And so it's a real transition, um, you know, both in terms of employees who will be moving on with their career and relocating, as well as just in terms of the renewable energy future and you know how we transition as a state away from fossil fuel. And it really showcases the transition to greener. And just smarter energy projects. We announced earlier this year our intent to exit coal or decarbonize by 2025 as a company. We have really been focused on bringing on solar, solar plus storage projects. We have a wind project. And I think it's really about bringing those projects on as quickly as we can. um, And that will help to bring down costs for all of our residents. I know that's a big, that's obviously a really big concern as people are seeing renewable projects come on, they aren't necessarily um, seeing the savings yet. Uh, And in that sense, we still have a few curves in the road to negotiate because the short term challenge here is that as we close this coal plant in September, we don't have as many renewable projects coming online immediately and so the reality is that residents here on Oahu are going to see, you know, higher costs in the short term. But as we work together, you know, with Hawaiian Electric, with all our state agencies to bring on these renewable projects as quickly as we can, that's where we can help and, you know, work on bringing those costs down. And at the same time really helping to decarbonize and move our island away from fossil fuel reliance and helping with all of the associated impacts of climate change.
5: What does it yeah. actually take to retrain or train someone to place them, for instance, in the green energy industry?
4: That's a good question and we're working with our workforce even and, and you know trying to retrain in terms of new solar or uh, wind and green jobs, essentially requires training, and um, my we've been doing some of that reskilling and training at our our plant as well. And as I understand it, it, it's it's not easy to learn all of this, but we've been making a concerted effort to provide that training for employees who are interested in doing that and it's, I think, really important as we move into this new technology and, you know, a clean energy future. And we have, like I had mentioned, successfully been able to have already for the last couple of years, we've had, you know, people who were interested in moving into the clean energy space move from working at the coal plant into working at a solar site, you know, at our Lavoie Kauai project. And we also have one person who is at our wind project at Napua Makani. And so they have successfully made that transition, but it is something that, you know, they do need to go through the training and, and getting reskilled, And so it, it does take some effort for us in particular with island residents here. You know, we may have jobs on the mainland, but you know how people in Hawaii are. We don't. We our families are here, and and we don't necessarily want to relocate. So that's a challenge as well, and and that's been a unique challenge for our workforce because we really are trying to find people jobs here locally as opposed to you know trying to relocate them to the mainland. So just to kind of give them an acknowledgement. There are several employees who have been there from the day that doors opened at the plant. So there are people who have been working there for the last 30 years for the life of the plant.
0: That was Sandra Larson, the Hawaii market business leader for the AES Corporation, talking about the closure of Hawaii's only coal-fired plant with uh, Savannah Harriman-Pote. The shutdown of the facility doesn't mean AES is exiting the Hawaii market. In addition to uh, other projects, AES breaks ground tomorrow on its newest Helani uh, solar plus storage facility on Maui. <music> HPR is hiring. Are you looking for a career change? We have several positions for you to consider. We're looking for new team members to organize our broadcast fundraisers and events, crunch numbers, and help our members with a smile. If you love HPR and want to play an important supporting role behind the scenes, apply today. View our job openings online at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs.
3: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org.
0: Our reality check today focuses in on an arbitration decision that stands to provide raises for our police officers here in the state. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yerton joins us. Good morning.
6: Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, this is across the board. Yes, it's across the board. Um, Again, this was something that's been um, under discussion, a new contract, uh, for um, over a year now, and uh, the... State and local governments, really the counties mostly, and uh, the union that represents the police officers uh, just couldn't come to an agreement on certain terms. It's pretty common uh, with you know, contract disputes or collective bargaining agreement negotiations. And so uh, finally uh, this week, the, uh, an arbitration panel consisting of someone from uh, the two sides and a third uh, party uh, mediator disinterested third party came finally issued an, a, an order um, outlining uh, what's gonna happen
0: so they broke the impasse
6: they broke the impasse there was a, an official impasse it was broken and so now uh, something about 2,700 police officers statewide uh, will be assured raises um, of five percent per year starting uh, this year this fiscal year which started um, earlier this month and running through 22 23 and 24 so it's raises again five percent per year um, it's obviously people need that these days we have inflation exceeding rate exceeding that amount and so this will help uh, people keep up with the cost of living
0: yes and we should underscore of course that uh, I think here uh, in Honolulu, we have a shortage of a couple hundred police officers. So hopefully this will entice people to hopefully apply.
6: Yes, that's right. And the mayor said that, you know, I I called uh, his office and uh, his spokesman said that uh, Ian Shearing said that, yeah, this is something the mayor really believes in. It's a way it's an investment in the uh, future of the police department. It's an investment in public safety. Um, he says public safety and family safety. So, yeah, the mayor definitely views it as a way to get people uh, working for uh, the police department, which, by the way, uh, does pay fairly well already.
0: Right. And, and, you know, we've seen over the years, right, the, the controversy, some of the stories that have come out about all the OT that officers are having to work because they are short, um, but I imagine that's going to be bumped, too, if they can't get enough uh, people to fill those vacancies.
6: Right, and uh, again, it's um, it, it really, this is designed in part to do that. The police officers did want more. Um, they were asking for, for example, uh, they wanted extra money for uniform allowances and equipment allowances um, and uh, more money for their automobile uh upkeep allowances. Uh, the panel said, no, That we, you don't need that. Um, the officers also wanted a 6% per year raise. The panel said, no, uh, that's not okay <laughs> as well. So the 5% per year was a, um, a compromise of sorts.
0: Okay. And are they getting a, a lump sum bonus as well?
6: Yes. Th- yes a bonus as well. Um, and again, it's on top of a pretty a pretty decent salary for a starting police officer or someone with two to three years experience. Um, it's about before the raise, about fifty six hundred dollars a month. So it's 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 a decent um, living wage. It goes up to uh, six thousand over six thousand per month for officers with uh, seven to nine years of experience. So then this is again a raise on top of that, and that's the base salary.
0: Okay, and so. Uh, well, the decision has just come out this week uh, it's re- retroactive to July 1st the fiscal year
6: yes yes that's exactly right
0: okay and um, gosh so I, I imagine uh, uh, folks are pretty happy about that The police officers yeah, so anyway the,
6: yeah the police officers you know the union worked on this um, for a while and it it really is uh, the breaking of an impasse and again the mayor the mayor is, uh, seems to be happy about it as well, which is, you know, spending more money, I guess, is not always something public officials like to do. Uh, but he said, you know, this is putting our money where our mouth is when it comes to public safety.
0: Yeah, very important public safety for sure. But thanks so much, Stuart.
6: Thank you, Catherine.
0: That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. Today we begin looking at the candidates for the job of lieutenant governor, the second top job in the executive branch of state government. In the race for LG, there are a total of 10 candidates vying for the position. Today we hear from Keith Amemia, who lost a previous bid to serve as Honolulu mayor. He currently works as the head of the Central Pacific Bank Foundation.
7: My career has been centered around public service. I enjoy it, it's rewarding, um, it started off primarily when I was the executive director of the Hawaii High School Athletic Association, which I led for 12 years. In that position, I was the head of high school sports throughout the state. I had the opportunity to visit all 98 high schools across the state often and the surrounding communities. I got to learn about the communities very well across the state, which uh, makes me well-suited to serve in a statewide elected position because it's very similar. Um, High school sports is very contentious at times, uh, people are very passionate and you have to balance the needs of, of schools and, and student athletes and, and communities across the state. Uh, it was there that I did visit communities and learned that many families, working families across the state were struggling back then. This was 20 years ago and they're struggling even more today. And I feel it's important that all of us do what we can to uplift working families across the state they're leaving our state in alarming rates because of the high cost of living and the fact that housing, in particular, is is far too expensive. And if we don't do anything soon, we're going to lose an entire generation of people. But you know, back to why I'm running. I worked with youth throughout my career as well, and I enjoy working with them. I'm passionate about creating a better future for them. Like people. Uh, of you're in my generation, were supported by people above us, and so I want to carry it forward, pay it forward, if you will, and that brings me a lot of satisfaction in life. I'm also running because we need change. Well, we need new leadership. We've had the same people in office for the past 10, 20, in some cases, 30 years or more, and our standard of living has gotten worse over the years. It's arguably the worst it's ever been in, in our state's history. And so we need new people, people that haven't been in office, people that aren't influenced unduly by, by lobbyists and special interest groups, which is seems to be happening all throughout our political scene today, including in our legislature. And I'm the only candidate in this race that has a real plan to clean up the corruption in the legislature that starts with term limits banning fundraising during the legislative session, eliminating financial conflicts of interest, and requiring legislators to comply with the Sunshine Law. So there's a multitude of reasons, but basically uh, I'm passionate about public service and working with the communities and in the communities and trying to make Hawaii a better place for everyone.
0: Some might think You have a lot of guts going after this particular seat. I mean, I know you were interested in in the mayor's job as well.
7: I've always been interested in public service, and it's a big commitment. It's a big leap of faith. And so I didn't do it earlier for for that and a bunch of other reasons. Um, One of the big factors was that our son was still young and at home. I wanted to wait if I could till he was in college and, and older so that he didn't have to deal with all the the bad that can come with politics. And so now he's in college and going away to school. So now, ironically, during the mayor's race two years ago, he was home because of the pandemic and, and uh, took the year off because school was entirely online and he couldn't be on the, on the continent anyway. And so he was here to see it all for better or worse during the mayor's race. But the mayor's race was encouraging to me in the sense that the top two candidates, Rick Blangerdi and myself were first time candidates, never held elected office. And I still think that the public, very much in favor of new candidates, they, they don't care about experience or they think experience is not necessarily a good thing, that they want people with business experience, with community experience that haven't been in the legislature or elected office their entire careers that provide that better perspective than if you've been entrenched and in office.
0: You talked about your service um, with athletics. Uh, you know, and I've seen your ads with Carissa Moore, but you know, this is the anniversary of Title IX. So what do you say to folk who might ask, you know, well, what did you do to advance equity in education?
7: I'd be happy to answer that. That was one of my priorities when I was running high school sports. Uh, During my tenure, with the help of a lot of people and support from a lot of other people, we more than doubled the amount of sports offered to girls, to female student-athletes. We doubled the amount of participation, and we provided record numbers of college athletic opportunities for female student-athletes. Sports such as girls wrestling, girls golf, girls water polo, girls canoe paddling, those sports never existed. in Before I took over uh, in, in 1998, girls had to compete with boys on the boys team in a lot of these sports, and it's easy to forget, just like it's easy to forget how things were 50 years ago before Patsy Mink and Title IX, we sometimes take it for granted, but there were a lot of in- inequities when I first took over high school sports a, then, in Hawaii,
0: and then what about scheduling? You know, because that, that was always an issue too.
7: That was an issue, but we rectified that as well. And <laughs> scheduling's not been brought up for over ten years. Uh, there's equality uh, on all levels. That was brought up in the mayor's campaign uh, against me in terms of not providing uh, equal opportunity to females, but I think we properly addressed that, and that. There's a lot of female student athletes and a lot of female administrators that will validate what I've done, whether it's Beth McLaughlin, uh, who was the longtime athletic director at La Pietra. I think you'll get the same answer from someone like Carissa Moore, and, and who, uh, I'm fortunate enough, did, did a TV commercial for me in this current campaign. So there's lots of examples. There's a lot of women who will vouch for me, so to speak, that we made a lot of strides in terms of female student athletes. I'll highlight one example. We were the first state in the country to create a girls wrestling sport. Everywhere else in the state and including in Hawaii, girls have to wrestle against boys and that's not appropriate for a lot of reasons. And so we were the first state in the country to create a separate sport of girls wrestling and it's blossomed. Now there's college wrestling for women. There's Olympic wrestling for women.
0: And we have a Hawaii woman who is in the Hall of Fame, yes.
7: Clarissa Chun was one of our first state champions in the first year when I helped create girls wrestling as an official state sport. She went on to excel in college, she made the Olympic team, she won a bronze medal, and now she's the head coach of the Iowa Women's Wrestling uh, team. She's a product of Roosevelt High School. So we've made tremendous strides in terms of equity with female student athletes, and I'm proud to have been a part of it.
0: In this race for Lieutenant Governor, the latest polls, you know, have a couple other candidates ahead of you.
7: Well, actually, it's a t- statistical dead heat, and, and if you go by numbers, I'm second out of three. There's three candidates, including myself, as part of the three that's basically in a, in a statistical dead heat. And so, what it's going to take is, is getting our message across, campaigning hard, explaining to people why I'm the best candidate. Uh, among other reasons, I'm the only one with a real plan to clean up corruption in the legislature. My three opponents want to keep things the same. They're against term limits, for example. I'm the only candidate with statewide executive leadership experience. The Lieutenant Governor's job is an executive position. With all due respect to my opponents who have accomplished careers of their own in different areas, being a legislator or a council person or a lobbyist doesn't give you the executive leadership experience you need to be the number two person in the state.
0: You talk about uh, the corruption and the latest we're hearing about is the housing scandal on the Big Island. And to think that this has been going on, uh, you know, under people's noses, uh, makes you wonder what's happening here statewide with the housing credits or in Honolulu.
7: We have to root out corruption at all levels and and get better elected people in office. I'm not saying everyone in elected office has committed wrongdoing or crime, but. The way the system is currently structured and the people we have in elected office, they're too beholden to, too influenced by lobbyists, special interest groups, and big business. And uh, that's why I'm running. Nothing will change unless we reform how government is run, how the legislature is run, how campaigns are financed. And we will never get to the issues at hand if our legislators are compromised.
0: And you know, we know that uh, there have been subpoenas that have been issued uh, with the rail project. Uh, we haven't seen you know much else aside you know from that. But uh, how are you looking at the rail project?
7: Well, obviously that's more appropriately a city issue, but it has statewide ramifications. For example, I mean, the G E T rate has been increased in part to fund the rail project, and so we we need to just keep monitoring the situation, punish the people who have committed wrongdoing as appropriate, and, and hold people accountable. That, that's another big issue of mine, uh, a concern of mine, as well as the voters across the state, that we're not holding our elected officials accountable, and we have to stop re-electing them and, and complaining that nothing's changing because we need new leadership cleaning up corruptions first and foremost because you don't get to the top issues unless you do that. But after that, it's affordable housing, build a lot more affordable housing, address homelessness, and climate change. I mean, there's there's a lot others, but those are the top three that come to my mind.
0: That was Keith Amamia, candidate for lieutenant governor. According to the latest poll by the Star Advertiser, 38% of voters are still undecided.
3: Support for HPR comes from Alamoana Hotel by Mantra, offering rooms and suites with ocean, mountain, and city views, and a lobby featuring a backdrop of Hawaii's flora by local artist Kamea Hadar. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Andrew Harvey. I'm author of The Hope and Play Life More Beautifully.
8: And next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about putting love into action all over the world now. Beginning Sunday morning at 11.
0: In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about Japanese-American students who were kicked out of the University of Hawai'i's Reserve Officers Training Corps, or ROTC, at the outbreak of the Second World War. They circulated and submitted a petition that read, in part, we know but one loyalty, and that is to the stars and stripes. We wish to do our part as loyal Americans in every way possible, and we hereby offer ourselves for whatever service you may see fit to use us. In February uh, 1942, the 169 students got their wish and became a labor battalion called the Varsity Victory Volunteers, which is the answer to today's quiz. They were assigned to the 34th Combat Engineers Regiment based at Schofield Barracks, where they built roads and fences. Strong barbed wire, and broke rocks in the quarry. The efforts allowed them to gain the trust of the federal government, and after 11 months, the Varsity Victory Volunteers a group was disbanded to become the nucleus of the 1st All-Nisei Combat Regiment, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And congrats to Jerry from Kaneohe. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea to share with us, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. It's a History Day project that brought together teams of teachers and students from as far away as Guam and Connecticut. What they have in common is that each honors a different veteran buried at the National Cemetery of the Pacific at Punchbowl. Hometown heroes are silent heroes. The students are winding up a week of visiting the Arizona Memorial, the Aviation Museum, uh, the Missouri and the Bofin submarine at Pearl Harbor. Tomorrow they will present eulogies to cap off months of research about a hometown hero. Here's 17-year-old Napu Blas from Father Duenas Memorial School in Guam, sharing the story of Chamorro veteran Jesus Chargalof Malanisai, who died at the age of 22.
8: Stuart Third Class Jesus Chargalof Malanisai was born in the village of Malesu on the southern end of Guam. The eldest son of Juan Castro Malanisai and Carmen Chargalof Malanisai, he grew up living a life of subsistence farming and fishing. At the age of 18, on December 2nd, 1940, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy, receiving training aboard the USS Robert L. Barnes. Manalizai started off with the rank of mess Attendant 3rd Class, one of the few positions Chamorro men were allowed to hold due to their skin color. This marked the beginning of Manalizai's military career, and soon after he was sent to the United States mainland for duty. I
0: spoke with both Mapu Blas and his teacher, Lazaro Canata, about this week-long experience.
2: The entire focus of the project is for a student-teacher team to do research on a serviceman that has given up their life during World War II from their area, from the region that that they're from. So in our case, it's a Guam serviceman, and it's like eight months starting in January, eight months of online classes where they give us all these different texts to read about World War II to help put ourselves into a better context about what the war was really about and the different battles. And all the while, they're giving us information, helping us, giving us resources to, to do research on our servicemen. So it is very much fueled a lot by the student. Uh, the student does a lot of the research. We as teachers, we help to assist the research where we can, but also just you know being there to, to give that professional support and that guidance.
0: And Napu, share with our listeners, the students are actually writing eulogies about these veterans. Tell us about the veteran that you've selected.
8: The veteran I selected, is Chargoloff Manoisa, he was actually a submariner. He was on submarines during the war, and when he died, he was on a submarine called the USS Wahoo that crashed in a strait called the La Perouse Strait between Japan specifically the island of Hokkaido and Sakhalin, which is part of Russia. And what it was doing up there, so close to Japan, the submarine was in enemy waters sinking ships because submarines were a very integral part of the war in the Pacific, and they sunk Japanese cargo, which is important because Japan relied on outside import for food and other resources. And so by sinking those cargo ships, it played a very important role in the war. Jesus Chargoloff Manalisa, he was a... He started off as a mess attendant third class, which was unfortunately one of the only ranks that Chamorros, Latinos, and African Americans were allowed to retain in the military. So when he joined the Navy, he joined with his brother, Jose, and they were both mess attendants. But he slowly rose through the ranks, and he fought in so many different battles, such as Pearl Harbor, later Midway, and the Aleutian Islands, and he uh, jumped from different submarines. He went from submarine to submarine. First, he was on the USS Narwhal, and then was on the USS Finback, and he had a brief stint in uh, New Hampshire, where he was training for uh, service on the submarine. And then later on, he transferred to the USS Wahoo, which is his final ship.
0: Tell us, as part of this project, Lazaro, I mean, have you had a chance to go over to Punchbowl?
2: So the culmination of the trip, really, is to have each of the students deliver their eulogy in front of where their veteran is memorialized over at the Punchbowl. So that is going to be the last event that we do.
0: Have you been to the site, though, to see the, the headstone?
2: No, not at all yet.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so that's going to be Mm -hmm. pretty powerful then when you go there on Friday.
2: Yeah, you know, we do research on our veteran, on Jesus Manalisa. We've, you know, been reading about him and learning about his story for eight months and then to finally get to this point where we were both going to be able to see him memorialized over at Punchbowl and to bring to deliver eulogy. I think is going to be a very powerful
0: moment. And as part of the research, were you able to talk to any relatives, any family?
2: We haven't because he enlisted at such a young age you know he doesn't have any kids but we've been able to see that there are relatives still alive so his brothers and sisters that did
0: survive so you'll be connecting with them when you go back uh, yes, yes
2: that's, that's the intention
0: what was the most interesting thing that struck you as you were doing the research for your veteran
8: everything pretty much jesus was like at a lot of different places and i think the craziest thing though was We're searching on the internet and we're like scouring through all the photos of the ships and like their group photos of the crews on the ships, old records and stuff on the internet. And we managed to somehow, after like a lot of searching, we managed to come across another photo of him. The program had already found a photo, so they showed us that one. And we managed to find another one on another ship, the USS Finback. It was taken actually in Alaska which is really cold. <laughs> like most of the crew was wearing jackets.
0: Oh yeah, it's
8: cold. But Suze Chargolaf Manalisa, with his Chamorro blood was like one of the few that was deciding not to wear a jacket, <laughs> just like standing there. So I thought that was crazy. It was, it was something that was pretty hard to catch, but when I started the picture long enough, I was like, whoa, <laughs> must have taken a lot of bravery just to do that.
0: And so, Lazaro, I don't know where you've been able to go. Have you been over to the memorial yet? I mean, where is this program taking the students and the teachers? Been to the Arizona Memorial yet?
2: We spent the entire day yesterday over at the Polfin. We Went to the the submarine museum. And then today we've been at the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum. We did an overnight stay at the USS Missouri.
0: Napu, you know, I guess getting to know other students who have their veterans and who are sharing those stories, that must be really neat to kind of see how you're all connected.
8: I've made so many friends on this program from all over the country, too. It's crazy. We've all been, like, researching the past year. We've, like, seen each other on the Internet, but not really, like, in person. So just meeting each other it, they're wonderful people and it's crazy that we've all like been researching silent heroes and we've been like trying to track down the movements of people like where they were at in the war and what they did from like the 1940s and especially like the tools we're using primarily like the internet so it's not exactly easy but some records that are online using the, the ones that are we've actually been able to find surprisingly a lot and it just goes to show that the resources we have are definitely sufficient to we can do a lot with the resources that we have even though it's you wouldn't think that it stretches that far back
0: it certainly does help you appreciate history
8: yes definitely just during the process and like trying to research someone who lived so long ago that was not exactly like super talked out historical figure like theodore roosevelt or fdr or obama
0: lazaro anything else you want to just add
8: yeah i think that this program it's really amazing
2: for the single reason that it's not like we're doing research on someone that like everybody knows about, like General Patton, or any noteworthy commander mm-hmm. um, or general, it goes to show that history, regardless of who it's about, is important to the people that are researching it. And to be able to, you know, give this honor that's usually like reserved for the greatest heroes of the war, to do this much research, all of these students that are here, to do this much research for someone from their state or their island is one of these great honors in their lives. To be a part of that, I think, is to be like one of the best things about history. Interestingly enough, I actually participated in the same program back when it wasn't Pearl Harbor, but it was um, Normandy, so D-Day. Oh, wow. Um, And this was in 2015, I participated as a student. And so now that I'm a teacher, my department head, who was the teacher that I went with in 2015, um encouraging me to apply this time and mm-hmm. so when i was looking like the student i picked napu who just so happens to be that same teacher's son so it's like very full circle uh,
0: That we were list- we were hearing from uh, uh, lazaro Ginata uh, and uh, napu blas uh, who are from guam uh, taking part in a history day project the travel and program expenses for all the participants uh, funded by the Pearl Harbor Historic Site Partners, as well as to the efforts of the National Park Service, the National Endowment for the Humanities, and Southwest Airlines. And that is it for us today. Tomorrow we hear how the industry has changed for female pilots. Give us some feedback. Got questions about anything you may have heard on or air? Call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.